Okay, sorry about that. Old man tries to use technology. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's July 2022 and the process has begun to see if the UK can find a Prime Minister who's even more of a corrupt, incompetent, borderline, fascist piece of shit than the last one. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction. Uh, excited to get into this month's episode. We've got a good one for you, so let's go. We aim to provide an old-school film-goers experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy on the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash DoubleReel, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Episode 27 has an overall theme of dreams, altered reality, and mind-bending filmmaking. Here's what's coming up this month. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're looking at Paprika, an award-winning Japanese sci-fi anime which inspired Christopher Nolan's Inception. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is David Cronenberg's Existence. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 27, it's Vincenzo Natale's failed attempt to adapt William Gibson's Neuromancer. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month discusses the 2010 remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 27, we discuss films and filmmakers that play with reality and mess with our minds. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Tony, friend of the pod, says Two Days in the Valley should be in your Hidden gem section. It's a wonderful film. I watched that in the cinema around the same time I saw City of Lost Children. Well, Tony, from your mouth to God's ear, I nominate Two Days in the Valley to be our next Hidden Gem. On our big conversation, mind-bending films and filmmakers, Max says Event Horizon doesn't have the same cachet as arthouse films, but it completely messes with your mind. Durham Redstripe says the films that messed with my mind the most were Interstellar, The Bookshelf, Sunshine, The Ending, Kids, because it was a tough watch, and All of Tenet. I did, however, enjoy them all. <laughs> Ray says the most mind-bending film of all time is Naked Lunch. Good choice, Ray. On our classic Paprika, Robert says it's a masterpiece. It's the perfect subject for Japanese anime. On this month's Cuba Country 2001, Gary says I admire this film more than I love it, although I tend to prefer his earlier stuff. Noah says this is an amazing film, and it says a lot about Kubrick uh, that as great as it is, it's still not as good as his other films like Paths of Glory, Killing and The Shining. On our one that got away, Neuromancer Sarah says that film would have been mind-boggling if they'd actually made it. 
On our hidden gem existence, Nicholas says, I agree 110%. This is a hidden gem, one of my favourite Cronenbergs. However, Mark says it's okay, but I always think of this film as Videodrome Light. On our remake, Hate Watch of A Nightmare on Elm Street, Paul says, I don't really don't mind this remake. I never found the original Elm Street film scary. I saw them more as dark comedies, and I thought the new version was a more mature take on the story. Okay, then. On new release, Hustle, we'll be talking about uh, on the pod as well. Ed says, I liked it, easy to watch and kept me entertained, better than what I expected. And on the big new release, Thor Love and Thunder, Charlotte says, disappointing, cartoonish, bad CGI, a real come down from Ragnarok. Thanks for all your messages, even the ones we couldn't read out. Now on with the pod. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. This month, we've got an overall theme to our features, which is around altered reality, dreams, and films that mess with your mind. Just to quickly mention our other podcast you might like to check out, The Adamson's Verses is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our latest episode, The Adamson's Versus The Combat Dolphins, is out now. So first, let's look at some news. Any news stories catch your eye, mate? Uh, James Cann passed away. Yeah, that was the first thing on my list. Um... Just obviously my first memory of James Caan being the year I was born in would be uh, him playing the dad in Elf. Yeah. And then as you go older, you kind of realise that James Caan is not <laughs> that kind of genre actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, just a great talent. Um, very surprised that he only ever got, was it one Oscar nomination? Yeah, I mean... Um, I very think... talented actor. I don't think he was ever appreciated enough by the Academy or awards in general. Um, yeah, I, th- I think he, he probably had the bad luck of doing his best work when there was a cluster of other great actors doing great work in that kind yeah. of 70s era. Like, for example, this is a strong argument to say he's the best thing in um, in The Godfather. Um, mm-hmm. But that was Marlon Brando's year for an Oscar, you know, uh, just things like that. Um, for me, obviously, Sonny and The Godfather is what he always been remembered for. The first, my first experience of him was that uh, amazing cameo he had in A Bridge Too Far about a real guy who held a surgeon at gunpoint uh, during the war and, and made him save his officer's life, um, which was uh, which was great. And obviously misery with uh, with uh, Kathy, Kathy Bates. Bates. Yeah, the fact the fact you, you even remember the other person who was in Misery shows that James Gunn did a good job there. Yeah, because that was Kathy Bates' film, wasn't it? Yeah, um, definitely, definitely. Um, other news, uh, an, another um, another sort of obituary, uh, Monty Norman, the composer of the Bond theme, died aged uh, 94 recently. Um, that's obviously that's, a long, uh, well-lived yeah. life. He's most famous for that, but he did a bunch of musicals and stuff as well. Um, rather more, uh, well, disturbing news from Iran. A number of film directors, including recent Golden Bear winner Mohammad Rasaloof, has been arrested in Iran. He was arrested for talking about the other two directors who've been arrested. So the Iran uh, government, who, as we all know, are a bunch of bastards, are um, cracking down very heavily on some fine filmmakers who can only imagine what a hard life they have making, you know, expressing themselves freely in any form in that world, but they do their best. Um, another another news headline, uh, which is very topical, actually. Uh, there is talk that visual effects deadline uh, artists are going to stop wanting to work with uh, 
Marvel soon because is of, it specifically Marvel or is it Disney? Um, maybe it is Disney because I think Disney is the one kind of turning this into a massive um, production line. I mean, it's not the only thing that's giving them trouble. I mean, if you remember the visual effects team on uh, Life of Pi, um, they won the Oscar for visual effects that year, and then that company went bust not long afterwards. Oh, um, really? So we've got we've got this weird thing that's like CGI is like this massive part of the industry, but not enough of the companies doing it are making any money, which suggests that they're not being treated very well by the movie industry. And this latest one is that, you, you know, people are saying a lot of this visual, visual effects and the CGI are starting to look a bit rushed and cheesy. And that is like they're being, it sounds like uh, the film industry is really killing the golden goose there because without CGI, they're really going to have to go back to square one. Now, I don't mind them going back to square one, right? But they don't look like an industry that's got a backup plan if CGI doesn't fucking work um, for them anymore. That is a weird one for me. I did see that, that people are, or visual effects artists feel basically overworked and underpaid by yeah. Marvel, but Marvel are still spending hundreds of millions on these films. You know, it's not like they're like reducing the budget of these films because that would make sense. If you know, if Thor Ragnarok cost two hundred million and the second one cost a hundred million, you'd understand why the the CGI looked a little bit ropier because they've got less money. But um, I think they're that, still spending think, the same amount, aren't they? So, well, they're spending the same amount on their films. Um, I don't know if it's you know salaries of actors going higher, it's other things, it's promote, it's other costs. But I mean, the, the the visual effects industry is saying that for the amount of work that they're doing and the amount of stress that it's putting under their people, um, it's it's not fun for them to work that way. And they're they're not making you know there are there are CGI companies who work for the film industry going bust, which doesn't make any fucking sense to me, right? Yeah. So something's not right. Um, the, I mean, the finances of the film industry are a bloody mystery, so God knows where it's all going. Um, any other news stories catch your eye? Um, not really a film thing, but um, you see Netflix and Microsoft have teamed up. No, I wasn't aware of this. So the plan is that Netflix and Microsoft are going to team up to introduce a cheaper subscription that includes adverts. Okay. Which, and I don't know if that has any bearing on the type of productions that are going to come out of netflix now but i just thought it was interesting yeah it's interesting kind of Am- living thing amazon prime is doing something similar yeah i mean i know amazon prime have ads like for their things before so you might see a, a an advert for the new jack reacher or no, is it jack ryan mm. i can't remember what prime have but you know yeah it's only got, amazon exclusives <laughs> yeah yeah um well what, what they also have they have something called freeview it was previously called a IMDB TV, but that was really confusing because the IMDB is a website where you find out about films and TV shows, not a website where you watch them. Do you know what I mean? Um, but it's called Freevee, and it's like, you know, Amazon has like, look, you can get your Shutter subscription through them, you can get this subscription through them. Freevee is another kind of app you can have essentially, uh, mm-hmm. and it's essentially part of or owned by Amazon, and it's like you can watch this free with adverts. Um, you know, you have some of the some of the films that we've watched, I think um, uh, Eve's Bayou was one where you could rent it for four ninety nine, or you could watch it free with adverts uh, on this other app. So it's something they're looking at. It's just different ways, you know, if people want to pay more or not. If it, it's it's like the it's the freemium model, isn't it? If you want to pay more and not have adverts, um, do it. If not, here's some adverts. Yeah, it's good. I think it'll be, you know, useful for folk that are wanting to save just, you know, even a couple pounds here and there yeah. a month. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that means that Netflix and Microsoft are going to now have like a, a budget for you know, a combined production or something like that. But I thought that was interesting, yeah. kind of yeah. sort of moving news. 
Um, but other than that, not really. It's been a couple of a couple of deaths. The Thor Ragnarok's been getting quite a mixed reception, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. So I was very excited for that film. So I don't know if I will, I'll bother to go to the cinema um, mm. to see it. Yeah, well, we can come to. I mean, I have watched it, so we can. We can oh, talk have about you? What I thought of it. Yeah, yeah. All oh, right. Okay. A couple of other quick uh, news stories. One for me, another kind of freaks who love David Cronenberg. His new film, Crimes of the Future, finally has a UK release date, uh, 9th of September. So that was that was shown in Cannes and got shown in America in June. So I've been sitting there going, when am I going to get to see it? And the answer is 9th of September. Uh, and Harrison Ford turned 80 this month. Um, so wow. happy, happy birthday, Indy. Um, yeah, so I think that's all the news. Um, after news, we tend to do uh, new releases. Uh, anything coming out after the date of publication of this uh, this episode of the podcast. So anything after 25th of July until sort of the 25th of August, sort of that that coming month things you might want to look out for or watch is anything upcoming that's caught your uh, caught your attention mate um not really um is there anything that's caught your attention i've not really i don't i think i watch tv differently to you so i i miss quite a lot of these adverts a lot of them i get um it's through like twitter and facebook and that can get lost in a lot of like the news feeds and yeah that. i mean um, like the things that catch my attention like like last last month because i was walking past the cinema well we, we were both doing it we because you were down we, we walked past the cinema on the way to the shops and we saw a poster for the, the that george miller film with um Idris oh Elbury. yes um but that, that's not out yet that's out soon but not yet um and obviously when i see trailers for things when i do go to the cinema that's a usually when i see it other than that it's when i it's when for this feature I go on IMDb and go, what what are the release dates they say they've got mm. coming up, really? I mean, Nope, Jordan Peele's film, Nope, is coming out. That's probably the one that's got my attention the most. Okay. The latest trailer I saw of that shows you a little bit more about what it is. It looks like it might be... I, it looks like the people on the ground think it's an alien spaceship. But then there's lots of hints that, oh, it's not what you think it is. So it's still a bit mysterious, but it showed you a little bit more of what it might be. There's something up there in the sky that's threatening people on the ground. Um, and it could be, I don't know, it's some sort of, it looked like a spaceship. And I thought, okay, is this aliens? Is this UFOs? Is that what Jordan Peele's doing now? So we'll wait and see. Other than that, 27th of July, there's a Japanese anime coming out called The Deer King. Um, DC League of Super Pets comes out on the 29th. This one intrigued me on the same day, 29th of July, Fire of Love comes out. It's a documentary about two scientists who studied volcanoes. They were a couple who studied volcanoes and they died together in an eruption of the volcano they were studying. So, okay. 3rd of August, Bullet Train comes out. That's been advertised quite a lot. Um, Brad Pitt um, on, a, on a Japanese bullet train with a bunch of other assassins fighting each other. It looks a very high concept. I think that is going to depend on the reviews. Um, there's a film called Where is Anne Frank, which is an animation imagining the life of the girl to whom Anne Frank dedicated her diary. Uh, Tra La La, which looks like a kind of quirky French musical. 19th of August, there's a, a sequel to Fisherman's Friends called Fisherman's Friends One and All. Um, that sea shanty film, I don't know if you ever saw that, but I didn't see the first one, but there's a sequel to it now. All right. And Free Chol Su Lee, which is a documentary about a Korean immigrant wrongly convicted of murder when where he was wrongly convicted, but then lots of weird shit followed that whole thing. It's not just the usual story of wrongly convicted and then you know and then they tried to get him released. There's other weird stuff happens as well, which I don't want to spoil. Um not a busy month for sort of big features. Probably the two biggest ones are Bullet Train and Nope, I would say. There's not that many considering it's the summer, there's not that many bigger bigger films coming out. Um, 
But uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't feel like it might be. It's a bit of a lackluster blockbuster summer, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, Thor, Rag- um, Thor: Love and Thunder has just come out, which I guess is the big film of the summer, isn't it? But it's but, been a bit of a fart, hasn't it? So. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Um, I mean, it's done really well on its opening weekend, Thor: Love and Thunder, but that's it. So yeah, so those are the films coming out. If any of them, you know, catch your eye, um, please go and see them and tell us what you thought. Um, and then we get to the films that we actually did watch this month. So. Shall I do Thor, Love and Thunder, because I've seen it? Yeah, get out of the way. So I went to cinema to see this uh, just the other night, actually. This is sort of uh, about 10 days ahead of when this uh, episode is going to go out, just to give us time to kind of do all the recording and all the editing and everything that happens. So yeah, I went to see it. I mean, it's um, the film starts with uh, Chris Hemsworth back as Thor. The guy, He's hanging out with the Guardians of the Galaxy. And then he gets dragged into uh, events that revolve around new Asgard. Um, so Valkyrie's in there. Uh, and as I think it's been heavily advertised, uh, Natalie Portman as Jane Foster is in there as Mighty Thor. And in various circumstances, I don't want to spoil, she ends up becoming a parallel version of Thor. And they all team up to fight a new threat played by um, Christian Bale, the God Butcher. He has, you know, all, all Marvel uh, villains have a motivation. Uh, he has a motivation, similarly and similarly corny, I think, and badly done, I think, to um, Scarlet Witch's motivation in Doctor Strange: Multiverse of Madness. Uh, it's like, oh, it's that again, is it? Um, but he wants to kill all the gods. Um, Thor, as a god, doesn't want that to happen. So off they go and do it. Um, you kind of what you want, right? Is you want them to do as good a job of this as they did with Thor Ragnarok to say it's really humorous, but still kicks ass. There's a nice balance between like the emotional stakes, the action and the, and, you know, Taika Waititi's kind of quirky sense of humor. I mean, the, the rock guy, Korg is back. Um, it just doesn't hang together. It's really cartoonish looking. It feels really, really? throwaway. Yeah. The CGI is fucking poor actually. Oh no. Um, there's, especially there's a post-credit sequence where they introduce a new character, and that new character looks absolutely shit. That's a fucking shame, man. It really is. Um, and yeah, there's, there's little things like what? What can I talk about without spoiling the plot? So Korg acts as like a kind of narrator to previous events and current events. You know, like he does like quite you know an, an epilogue at the end, which is meant to kind of tie the whole thing together. And if you've ever watched like George Miller's Mad Max films where they have those kind of narrations which are a bit childlike that give you a certain insight to what, what all went down, it feels like it's trying to be that, but it just doesn't land. It just doesn't work. The jokes don't really work. Some of them are funny, but a lot of them aren't. Um, the Guardians of the Galaxy involvement in the film is pretty meh. Um, I don't know what they're doing with Thor. He's kind of... It seems like the joke is, oh, he's actually gives really cheesy and dumb speeches. Is that it? What's going on? And it might have been that they had a lot, of, lot, lot cut out of the running time because the whole thing feels so rushed. But because that kind of emotional bit, and there's, there's, there should be things that like the stuff going on between Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman, which should give you a lot more emotional stakes, and Christian Bale's character, there should be a really big emotional impact to this film. But I really wasn't feeling it, man. Um, and you know. You know, there are things that are annoying in superhero films where you go, okay, that that person's the enemy, whereas if they sat down and had a cup of tea for five minutes, they wouldn't be the enemy. Do you know what I mean? 
or yeah. how come they f- you know, the, the superheroes finally do this thing that they could have done an hour earlier? Do you know what I mean? I don't want to give away any plot details, but these things that recur in, in films, and when you watch it about the fifth time, you kind of go, oh yeah, don't superheroes movies do that all the time? Do you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. normally when you watch it, that does not bother you because you can't, you know, because they've got their kind of little quirk, you know, quirks and features and you're enjoying the whole movie. Because you're not enjoying the whole movie, all those little things are, are more irritating. They, they seemed far too interested in little visual jokes and stuff. You know, there's lots of 80s references. Like, there's references to Tom, a Tom Cruise film. There's a reference to Jean-Claude Van Damme doing the, that, that thing where he does the splits. And it's like, not feeling it. It's a real shame. Do you reckon it was just the pressure of how unexpectedly good the first one was that they've just not been able to live up to the second one. I don't know. Live I don't know up to the second one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, right, I think Taika Waititi, it's not that he's not interested in the action and all of that stuff, but I think he goes into these films going, right, Marvel, you're going to give me the unit that's going to do the action, right, and that blowing shit up is going to look really cool. Let me get some chemistry going with the characters. Do you know what I mean? And that, the, the big action stuff wasn't working, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it just didn't work this time. Apparently, it was there was a lot of improvisation. I don't know. It just the bit that Taika Waititi would normally be very good at, it doesn't work very well either. I just think the yeah, whole the CGI had been bad and the action had been a bit kind of underwhelming. But all the jokes had landed and all the characters were solid. Then it would be a Taika Waititi Marvel film. Yeah, and because that's kind of what happened with Thor Ragnarok. I mean, I thought the CGI in Thor Ragnarok looked good. Yeah, but the action wasn't exactly you know blew you away, but the film was that funny that you didn't care. Yeah, I mean, when I watched Ragnarok, I thought, look, we all expect that thing to blow up and we all expect that sort of thing to be extremely colourful and dramatic and all that sort of thing. And sometimes you, you get spoiled, don't you? Yes, of course, it looks like a planet blowing up. Do you know what I mean? The, the CGI people are brilliant. They can they can look anything look like anything. Make me care about the story. And Taika Waititi made you care about the story, right? Um, this time, just didn't care. And it's got a really terrible cameo for Russell Crowe. You can add another shit accent to Russell Crowe's repertoire. This time he's doing fucking Davros from Harry Enfield. Why? Because he's playing Zeus and Zeus is Greek, so he's doing a comedy Greek accent. It's like it's like he's watched Stathlet's Flats and said, I'll have a crack at a funny Greek accent. Except all, okay. the, all the people doing that in Stathlet's Flats are Greek themselves and are a little bit more entitled to do it and a little bit better at doing it. Do you know what I mean? They're doing their dad or their uncle and he's just doing a shit... Honestly... That did not land at all, Russell Crowe as Zeus. You could see, all of this film, you can see what they're trying to do. It doesn't land. It's very disappointing. That's a real fucking shame. It's uh. a real. I mean, you know, we said in the last, the last one, this was going to be right. This was going to be maybe when they were going to pick things up a bit because Black Widow was good for about an hour and a half and then ended with a bit meh. Shang Chi was, Shang Chi was good, but you know, didn't stand out. Eternals was a bit weak. Um, uh, um, Doctor Strange 2 I think was a letdown and the, the best Marvel film lately isn't even a Marvel film it's I mean it, it's not an MCU film anyway it, it's it's got it, it it sticks to MCU continuity but Spider-Man No Way Home is a Sony film that just happens to do frankly Marvel films better than Marvel's doing their own films at the moment so I have to say that they're going through a bit of a poor run it's all it's all been a bit underwhelming since the end of Endgame isn't it Um, yeah has there actually been any good apart from the Spider-Man ones because um, there was one. That, there's been a, yeah, there's been two yeah. Spider-Man ones since Endgame, and, and they were both, both been very good. Both yeah. been good, and apart from that, they've been a bit of a letdown. I mean, I enjoyed Shang Chi, but I think Shang Chi was good, but it's not going to save the franchise if if things are in, in poor shape, right? 
Um, this, you know, Thor, it's got a frontline Marvel character. It's got a tie-in of the galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy, which has been one of the most successful, and none of it, none of it landed. This is, you know, when a, a football team makes several signings and one or two of them uh, are, are, are damp squibs, but, you know, are okay, but a lot's riding on the big signing. This is the big signing who hasn't fucking done the business. So that's where we are on Thor Love and Thunder. I mean, you know, make your own mind about whether you want to watch it because that's just my opinion and some people have liked it and I might just be being a bit, you know, I have felt a little bit marvelled out, but I was looking forward to this because I thought if Taika Waititi does, you know, a similar job to last time, I'm, I'm in. And I was, I was, I was let down by this. That's a shame. Yeah. That's, I'll probably just wait for that to come on Disney Plus now. Yeah, um, to be honest, that would be my advice. But uh, if you if you wait and love it and say you twat, I should have gone to see it in the cinema. I apologise in advance. <laughs> um, anything else? I mean, do you, have you what what have you seen that's in your release of any kind? Um, well, I don't know if it counts, but I watched Hustle on yeah, Netflix. Yeah, that counts. I mean, that's a relatively was, recent film. It was good. It makes me really annoyed that Adam Sandler's been fucking about for years with all the shit films he likes to make. <laughs> yeah, see also Punch um, Drunk Love, Uncut Gems. Whenever he does something really good, you go, okay, so why Jack and Jill, Adam? Yeah, because like the jokes in like these films where he's playing a bit more of a serious role and there are actually like stakes at play, mm-hmm. the jokes land better when he and- plays an actual human. And, and I'll tell you what's interesting. When, so I, I haven't seen Uncut Gems. So I, it sounds like such a stressful film that I have to wait till I'm really in the right mood for it. But I love yeah. Punch Drunk Love. The thing about Punch Drunk Love is it's almost like Adam Sandler's really going as far away as possible from his typical Adam Sandler persona. In this, right, I watched it as well. I didn't think he was. You know that bit where he's on the phone and he's shouting, come on, you've got to do me this favour. All the favours I've done for you. He's pretty much doing that in his Adam Sandler voice. He's not He's not going out of his way to be miles away from his normal persona. And it still works. It, it just underlines the fact that he should be doing more more stuff like this, I thought. This is really good and there's no reason why he can't do more shit like this. Yeah. No, for, was... for people who haven't seen it, um, Adam Sandler plays a, a scout for the NBA who's sick and tired of travelling around. No, no, for an NBA sorry, uh, basketball for, team. For, yeah, sorry, for the 76ers, an NBA basketball team. And um, he is sick and tired of doing that, but he's kind of, he sort of messed up early in his kind of own possible basketball career and it kind of hasn't quite made it the way he should have done, I think. I don't want to go too much into it. But basically, and, it's, you don't really need to go into it. He plays a basketball scout and... He finds a player and it just follows his journey with that player and it's it's yeah very and it's good. like you know it's like this is it's this player's chance for a big break but it's also Adam Sandler's character's chance for a big break. I thought yeah. it was it was a really good move to get real basketball players to play to play those characters. Lots of people from you know NBA past and present in the film, uh, which makes it a lot more realistic. Apparently, white men can't jump was a real struggle to make because um, Wesley Snipes is shit at basketball. Um, whereas everyone in this really can play basketball Adam Sandler loves his basketball so he's for real even Queen Latifah she's not actually involved in the sport she's an ex-runner who's you know just happens to be married to Adam Sandler but in real life she was like a seriously good basketball player when she was young as well so it's just it's made by people who really know and love basketball and they've made a legitimately good sports film if you like an American sports film this is this is for you simple as that I agree. Um, not other than that, I've not really watched new releases. I've watched um, films, but not yeah. new releases. I watched well, The Fighter again just for yeah. So now we're we're onto your resolution now. What have you What have you made time to watch? You said um, you want to watch more films. So The Fighter, yeah, that's 
David O. Russell, it's one of those films that where we like David O. Russell, not one of those films of his where we don't It's the like only him. good film he's made. The rest of his films are shit. And it's nothing to do with his like direction that makes it good. It's just Christian Bale's amazing. Mark Wahlberg's good. Melissa Leo's amazing. Amy Adams is also really good. There's the, nothing to do with like, the, the film. There's, got, I like that there's enough. There's enough reality that he's got to portray that all of his bad habits don't ruin the film, is what, how I would describe yeah. it. Um, I mean, I really liked Three Kings that he did way back in the day, but I think since then he's become David O. Russell in inverted commas, and every film's got to be a David O. Russell film, and I've got no time for that. Anything else you've seen? Um, not off the top of my head. Let me double-check my Netflix to see if there's anything in here that I've missed, but no, I don't think so. That's fair enough. I mean, an old, an old favourite and a new release. It's uh, we, we, The whole point is how are we doing fit, fitting film watching into our busy lives? I know you've just had a puppy. I'm surprised we haven't had a bark in the background. He's um, in the other room and I took him out and t- I said I'm going to take him out and tire him before him I do a podcast. <laughs> unbelievably, unbelievably cute puppy. Um, uh, yeah, when he's when he wants to be. <laughs> when there's people watching. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I swear to God, he's essentially uh, your little brother's spirit animal, isn't he? Um, okay so that's your resolution fulfilled I think for the month my resolution is uh, to continue with the year long project uh, uh, 2022 of Kubrick Odyssey each month I watch one of his films because I kind of squeezed his two early shorter ones in into January I'm actually going to manage to do his entire filmography in one year uh, we're into the seventh film of his career, start of the second half of this project and of, you know, and I think it's the second half, you know, in a game of two halves of Kubrick's own career, 2001, A Space Odyssey from 1968. This is where he takes, you know, complete control of his films. It's where he gained his reputation as a visionary filmmaker who essentially took over every single detail of his films, started doing films that were quite transformative. No one's done anything like this before. Um, you know, no one's you know no one's used equipment like this. He had to invent half of what he did. He you know would t- invent new film techniques, tell stories in entirely new different ways. And two thousand and one is the first the first time he really really properly does that. And um, it's one of the films that you know he's best known for. I'd say. I mean, if you would go look at a, a Kubrick um, obituary, I bet you there's a photograph of of this probably at the top of the article. Yeah. Um, it's based on a short story, The Sentinel, by Arthur C. Clarke. Stanley Kubrick, in developing this film, actually worked with Clarke on expanding the story, and they agreed that they'd do it as a film, uh, and in parallel, Arthur C. Clarke would, would write the expanded story up as a novel. So 2001 A Space Odyssey became a novel and a film, uh, but the film came out after the film, and, and they diverged a little bit in what, what to do in the story. Now, the story's roughly the same, but Arthur C. Clarke explains a lot more about what's happening than Kubrick. I think one of the the, the one of the key points of 2001 A Space Odyssey is that Kubrick purposely doesn't explain everything that's going on because he wants you to have a more intense experience. We're not going to just explain all this to you. You're just going to have to watch it and feel it. It's definitely what he wanted to do. Um, I mean, you've seen 2001, I, I assume, mate. What, what did you think of it? Oh, it's an absolute mind-bender of a film. Um, but... I think what I forgot about it is that it was shot in the 60s. Like, it was made back then. Mm-hmm. Which is what... I think if the only thing more mind-bending, mind-bending sorry, than that plot is the fact that they managed to do that film back in the 60s. It's, it's a... Yeah. I mean, he's, defi- he's definitely one of those people who's pr- pretty much had to invent what he was using to make the movie. Like, um, like George Lucas with Star Wars, where he invented a whole new set of special effects to make his movie. This is what Kubrick did. Kubrick was actually credited with the special effects in this film. Although there was a huge team of people, he was credited with like you know directing and controlling the special effects. So he, you know, no one has filmed 
everything from right at the start where a guy's lying in his seat and and he's he's fallen asleep and his pen is floating in zero gravity because they're going up to the moon or the space station or whatever it's just like like you say you watch it and then you but if you think about fucking hell 1968 man yeah it's uh, yeah so i mean there's kind of two things about 2001 there's what's going on in the actual story and then there's what the film is out on a bigger level what's going on in the story is obscure at some points but you can you can kind of explain what's happening what's going what the film's about on a bigger level is far more open to interpretation but it's kind of about where we came from and where we're going but aside from that i think there are so many interpretations of this film if you, if you do the basics it starts with the dawn of man the you know a hominid sort of you know humans haven't quite moved away from apes yet um that you know you see them kind of you know the daily lives trying to stop you know trying to avoid being eaten by leopards fighting each other for for you know food and water um and then this monolith clearly not a natural artifact just appears it causes something to click in early man uh, and it, that's where we start developing from our eight cousins into the dominant species with our ability to use tools and weapons and fuck each other over basically there's a famous jump cut of the bone flying through the air after that big fight uh becoming a spaceship orbiting the earth uh, that's the cut through to the year, kind of some time, maybe a few months before actual 2001. Another monolith has been found on the moon. It like, basically looks like a giant kind of double blank domino is what I've always said. And it's giant and mysterious. And it seems to be changing the world around it. The humans reach it on the moon. They try and analyze it. And what it does is it shakes them all up and sends some sort of transmission out to, and they, they trace the transmission to Jupiter. And they've, there's something's happening out on Jupiter. So they send a space, space mission out to investigate. Um, it's a crew of two pilots, an artificial intelligence computer called HAL controlling the ship, three scientists in suspended animation who'll be woken up when they get to Jupiter to study what's going on, um, and out they go. Um, and obviously what Kubrick does is he, he, it's the first like truly, truly realistic portrayal of space travel, isn't it? It's like, here's what is going on in orbit, the classical music as the ship docks. It's become a, I mean, it, it, it's, it's been, I'd seen three parodies of 2001 before I saw 2001, right? Uh, it's become such an iconic thing that, you, that a lot of people will have seen things referencing 2001 before they see the actual film, but the, the Strauss waltz as the ship goes through space. But there's a coldness, isn't it? It's kind of cold and dark and scary, and this ship isn't you know, going to hyperspace. Very it's isolated, a long, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a long, arduous journey out to Jupiter. And then the um, for reasons that are hinted at but not clear, how the computer turns on the crew um, and kills all but the pilot um, uh, Bowman, who disconnects Hal. Bowman continues on his own to Jupiter to finish the mission, mainly because he's got no choice. The ship's kind of on a, on a route there. He sees there's another monolith orbiting there. He's propelled into the stars from there through some sort of stargate into what appears to be a different dimensional realm. He's awestruck by the powers and forces he encounters there and enters a kind of different state of being and all sorts of weird stuff happens. He sees himself as an old man in what, in what looks like an old hotel room. Um... He watches himself eat. He watches himself as a young man watching himself. It's completely weird and freaky and he appears to be reborn as a star child. I'm not spoiling the plot because frankly, you can watch that and go, okay, well, I still need to watch it to have any idea what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's interesting. Have you seen the film 2010, James? It's the sequel to 2001. No. In that, right, they went back because Arthur C. Clarke wrote a trilogy of novels, so they went and did the second novel because people are interested in the sort of thing. It's a really good sci-fi film. It explains a lot of what happened in 2001. It explains why the computer turned on them. And it's really interesting to hear the explanation, but it's almost not necessary because you kind of make your own mind up about why, why the computer turned on them. 
because really what it's about is we can make these computers and we can send people on missions and we're really clever and can send this technology out into space but everything can still get really fucked up right mm. and at the end of the day it's not about how individuals might do on a given mission or how the how the computer's going or anything like that this is all part when you actually get out into space there's something much bigger and wider and more powerful than us happening kubrick was inspired to do this by the idea that you know reading up on science there are millions of planets out there, countless planets out there. There's intelligent life on some of them. There must be just because they can't reach us or haven't reached us yet doesn't mean it's not out there. Yeah. No. And what what if some of that intelligent life is a hundred thousand years ahead of us in their evolution? If you just imagine what what it would be like if we in the 21st century went back and visited those hominids from the start of the movie, yeah, that would blow their minds, wouldn't it? Imagine <laughs> someone a hundred thousand years ahead of us, like how would how would that influence the powers um this was an inspiration for for interstellar there's a similar thing going on with interstellar in that um nolan's exploring well what what's you know what 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 forces are going on in the universe and how, you know what happens when we get a bit closer to them um it's really interesting watching it again um i was really affected by one scene in which at the end when when bowman is disconnecting how Hal's pleading for his life he's going i'm scared i'm better now don't do this and Hal can't really explain why he's done what he's done. There is a reason. I don't want to spoil it. Go watch the film 2010. It's a really good movie. It explains what's going on. But that it's really interesting. This It's not just a computer that's that's killed people. The computer kills people. And then afterwards, when it says we're disconnecting you, he's going, please don't do it. Don't kill me. And so, oh, wow, that's really, that's really effective. Do you know what I mean? Even though Kubrick builds these cold and slightly unemotional worlds, there's a lot of emotion in there when you look. I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah. What I found out about this, I just thought this was a really intense experience. It's a genuinely, especially that last 20 minutes when you go through the Stargate, I found myself feeling like kind of strange watching all this stuff happening. And again, no CGI or practical effects. It's amazing what he did at the time. And, and as, as essentially a human being goes through a Stargate into a dimension it can't possibly, he can't possibly understand, I did feel myself going, oh, wow, this is fucking incredible. So weird and strange experience. Uh, and and you do you do find yourself thinking about length afterwards. I've you know you go and say I'm going to read a couple of articles about what other people say. What how do other people interpret this film? It really does get you thinking. Um, I mean I don't know if you've got any theories about what the film's really about, mate. Oh, I think that's, that's probably, another, that's probably that's another the podcast. Point. That's yeah. I think that was also the point of it. You're not fully meant to try and get it. It's left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. for our interpretation 100 percent. yeah kubrick didn't want you to be thinking here's, here's what kubrick wanted to do kubrick wanted you to do what we did which was after the movie we can have a chat about it can have a drink with someone talk about what they thought about the film while you're yeah. watching the film you're just fucking feeling it do you know yeah you're just it's going straight into your nervous system which, which i thought was really interesting um i've actually booked on to go and see it on a big screen at the end of this month i wasn't oh, able to book it, it before this but I, it's the Prince Charles Cinema, which shows old classics all the time. Uh, and I, I just, I've, I think once in your life, you need to see this on the big screen if you can. And I don't think there's many films you can say that about. We obviously prefer the cinema experience, and you'd always see great films on the big screen if you can. But if you would say, you know, pick five films that came out any time ever that you really should see once at the big screen in your life, this is definitely one of them. Yeah. So that's what, that's what we think about. Um, uh, about uh, 2001 it's also about uh, partly about machines that can think for themselves or what happens when humans develop technology and you know all those themes around the creator and the created uh, and that inspired me to do the impromptu top 10 for this month 
which is about uh, films featuring machines that can think for themselves and how that plays out in different stories. Uh, and that goes in no particular order. Blade Runner, Ex Machina, AI Artificial Intelligence, Terminator 2, Alien, Robocop, Ghost in the Shell, original version, The Iron Giant, Her, and The Matrix. There's millions more, but... Um, I can't believe you didn't put Team America in there. Oh, you know, maybe I should have put Team America in there. Bad Sorry. Intelligence. Bad intelligence, yeah. If this was a top 11, that would include intelligence from Team America. <laughs> So yeah, that's the that's the Cuba country for this month. Um, next month we're on to a Clockwork Orange, so we're we're talking some pretty serious controversial okay, content now. Woo! Okay, well that's that's our roundup uh, for this month, and we'll get on with the features now. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one of both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to watch them for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from Korean psychodrama The Handmaiden to Oscar-winning biopic Walk the Line. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month we kick off our theme of dreams and altered reality with an award-winning Japanese anime about terrorists attacking people in their dreams which provided some inspiration to Christopher Nolan's masterpiece Inception. The classic and recommended feature for episode 27 is Satoshi Kon's Paprika. So, mate, were you familiar of Paprika or any of the other work of Satoshi Kon before this was uh, nominated to be our classic this month? No, the only thing I knew is that one of the animators on this also did Spirited Away. Yes, yeah, that, and that tracks as well from a visual sort of look. You can see that, you can see that lineage, can't you? Yeah. Um, I was aware of Paprika because, you know, when you sort of click on articles, oh, where does Nolan get his ideas from? Because everyone gets his ideas from somewhere. Um, this was one of several places he got his ideas. I think, to, 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 to be fair, I don't think we're going to suggest in here that Nolan nicked all the ideas from Paprika to make Inception. This is what we believe is one of many sources that um, uh, Nolan drew on for Inception which I think is legitimate everyone does that everyone's got influences everyone who makes music has listened to other songs before and all that kind of thing you know if you if you can't deal with people having influences don't watch Tarantino films either do you know what I mean um, so by way of background Paprika was directed by Satoshi Kon in 2006 he's highly rated as a filmmaker big influence people like uh, Guillermo del Toro and Darren Aronofsky in Paprika, a piece of technology has been devised that enables a person to enter another person's dreams. This has been built by a scientific institute that intends to use it as a form of therapy, so it's all well-intentioned. But someone has stolen some of the devices and is turned into a kind of dream terrorist, infecting people's dreams and subconscious with delusions they've recorded from the mentally ill, which sends people mad and spreads a common nightmare into the dream world like a virus. The main character is a, doc a doctor... Um, she ha is moonlighting as an unofficial dream therapist um, f to try and prove the help people, but also prove the technology. She does this in disguise as an alter ego called Paprika, and she and her team try to become dream detectives to save the infected minds and catch the bad guy. Based on a novel by Yasutuki Tsutsui, I hope I pronounced that right, 
who also wrote the novel The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, uh, which has been adapted itself into a classic anime. Um, so, James, what did you think of this? Um, I thought it did an excellent job of kind of capturing the, how erratic dreams can be. Yeah. I think that's what I liked about it. I think they, they were they did very well with their animation to kind of create this kind of... It, it felt like you, you weren't meant to understand what's going on because often you don't understand what's going on in your dreams. Yes. So the way they used the animation for me was its strongest point. It was very... You sat there and you were... You you just kind of you just kind of experienced it. You just kind of yeah. you looked at what was going on screen, and almost as if this was not your dream yourself, but you were just watching yeah. someone else's mind just unfold. Um, I like the way people sort of burst in and out of the dream without because because oh, of what happens yeah, in the story, totally. people burst in and then the dream, and then dreams burst in and out of reality, and and it's it's. I think it's the perfect way to use animation to tell a story like this. Is what I would say. Yeah, you couldn't. This is the. You'd only want to see this story done with sort of like anime, yeah, or just you know fully animated, just for the sheer yeah craziness of it all. Absolutely. However, the, in terms of plot, I felt that there wasn't as much of a plot to be watched as opposed to just kind of let everything happen and don't even bother trying to follow it. If that makes sense, like I agree. look at what we look yeah. at what we can do with a screen. Like, it, it, felt, it, felt, it felt to me like a pretty typical kind of uh, Japanese anime storyline where it goes from here to here to here. And what was interesting about the film is what they did in and around that fairly standard storyline. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Visually, it's absolutely fantastic. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an absolute mind bender, but I think it's, it's hard to mark a film down for something like having a difficult plot to follow when the source or the topic is dreams because you can't you can't follow your own dreams so you shouldn't be able to really follow a film mm-hmm. about dreams. Yes. Um, yeah, I know I know exactly what you mean. It is the thing is I think the the effort has gone into making it really those dreams really feel like dreams and how yeah. disorienting it would be if you suddenly found yourself dreaming and didn't hang on, why am I dreaming? I thought I was awake. Do you know what I mean? Or am I awake or am I dreaming? And then your dreams are invaded by something else. I think the whole point of this film is to kind of conjure up what that feels like and looks like. And I think they, they, I think they focus their effort on the right thing, if you see what I mean. If, if that bit hadn't worked, we wouldn't be going, oh, but didn't they have a really clever kind of intricate storyline? Do you know what I mean? It's like if the storyline is a bit kind of whatever... The fact that they delivered this kind of incredible world—I think there's this delusion that can just explodes and this is kind of strange, strange, twisted parade. Um, and when that just kind of explodes into the screen, it's always like, "Wow!" It kind of really hits you every time it happens. I really like that. Did you? Um, what did you think of sort of sim- similarities that people have claimed with uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception? I think for me, the only obvious similarity is a device that allows you to enter other people's mm-hmm. dreams. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's very different intentions with the film. This is almost like a detective story. Do you know what I mean? If you take the, if you take the plot, it's a detective story, whereas Nolan's doing a heist movie. Do you know what I mean? So I genuinely they, they, they've think... Got, they've if, gone in with different intentions from the start. Yeah, the, the way the device is used has more similarities for me to Minority Report. Yeah. The way it's not really dreams, but it's visions, mm-hmm. and they use those visions as detectives to try and, you know, 
recover it, it, paprika. That's what they've called the yeah, device, paprika, and, haven't they? And I think that's a good point. The fact is, right, it's not just Inception and paprika that sit in this space about and use dreams and altered reality. I mean, Dreamscape, a movie from the 80s that you've probably never heard of, has similar stuff. Spellbound. Alfred Hitchcock did a movie where dreams are interpreted visual on screen and he got Salvador Dali in to kind of do some strange, weird sets to reflect it. Vin Vendors did a film called Until the End of the World that used te- you know, involved technology to you know, read and record dreams. Nightmare on Elm Street, obviously, which we're going to dis- discuss later. Akira Kurosawa's dreams. The fact that dreams are a thing in movies means anyone can do this and it's really all about how people do, how, what, what individual spin people put on this kind of general idea. I think the suggestions of a similarity stem from actually quite a small number of things. The sequences in a hotel corridor, which have some superficial similarities, but I think the hotel corridor is used very, very, very differently. But it is quite striking that there's a hotel corridor that in uh, in Inception turns into a kind of a centrifuge. And in this, it kind of turns into a kind of a, a wobbly kind of, you know, uh, quicksand under the carpet. But I think there's that shot down the hotel corridor, which is, similarity there's a use of lifts which again a million films have used lifts as a visual motif so i don't know how much you can do that there's also a scene in 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 inception where ariadne touches a mirror image and it falls apart revealing a world behind it and there's a very similar shot in paprika those could just be coincidences or this could just be you know what everyone's influenced by everyone man and little a few little details um don't make you know don't account you know for yeah, two, this is two different, totally different, two, films, two, different yeah. two different people had a similar interest. I think is all you can say. Um, yeah. Also, Paprika has its characters flying around and melting into each other's dreams, which is a very different thing. Do you know what I mean? It's there's a lot of people taking flight, and there's a lot of kind of tent, you know, tentacles and Japanese shit. As you say, I thought the visuals reminded me of, of Spirited Away. Um, I mean, I, I like it. I like it when films you can see like a common lineage in films. Do you know what I mean? It's but it's it's it's. I actually enjoy when two different and very creative filmmakers have done a similar storyline in a different way. I think that's great. I love it when people do that. So I, I enjoyed comparing the films, but I didn't conclude that anyone had stolen from anyone. No, no, no. Um, how quickly did you work out that Paprika and Professor Chiba were the same person? Oh, not till the end. I still wasn't too sure about it. <laughs> I, what I did was I went, who the fuck's this? Because the first sequence is Paprika with the red hair. And then it's like, hold on. What's happened here? She's in a car and and she's got black hair. And I, to be honest, I cheated and I checked with the first like sentence and a half of, of Wikipedia and went, oh right. So it's very uh, disorienting. It is quite. It does take quite a while to catch up. And also when the um, when the other professor starts just talking absolute gobbledygook and then jumps out the window, I'm going, what the fuck was that? And he's <laughs> like, oh, I see. The, the dream. This the the dreams are affecting people while they're awake. Do you know what I mean? Um. Once you get your head around that, it's very effective. The, the effective, the battle across dreams is pretty spectacular. Um, I like some. There's some nice little touches. There's a, a character in this film. He's like a middle-aged sort of police detective, and he's chasing a killer. And his he's his dreams are being uh, are being explored by Paprika as a form of therapy. Uh, and all of his all of his dreams are film themed, even though he says he's not really interested in films. And and that. That little story—it's like a subplot that unpicks and go. Oh, that's what's what's going on there. But there's a bit where in his dreams he's got the Kurosawa hat and sunglasses on, talking about films. I thought that was a really lovely little touch—a little tribute to Akira Kurosawa. Oh, no, yeah. Um, there's a strange and sort of sad little footnote to this that Satoshi Kon, the director of Paprika, he died of cancer just a month after Inception was released. I've no idea if he ever saw it. 
Oh. I kind of hope he did. I kind of hope he did and, and, and sort of um, would feel the same way the Rolling Stones felt when fucking Aerosmith came out. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, wow, I've, I've, I've got a legacy. Um, you know, or, or, you know, I'm not alone. There's other people who have the same kind of interesting dreams as me, put it that way. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he died not long after making this film. So this is kind of his masterpiece and almost final statement to the world. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite sad, but I do hope he got to see Inception. I think yeah, yeah. he would have liked it. Yeah, yeah. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we feature a lesser known David Cronenberg film which blurs the line between real and virtual worlds in this director's time-honoured twisted style. The hidden gem for episode 27 is Existence. So Existence came out in 1999, very similar time to The Matrix. It probably suffered by being like a small indie film coming out at a similar time to a much bigger blockbuster film about similar topics. Um, it basically features um, a, a group of video game fans have been invited to pre a preview trial of a new game, which is not just a new exper immersive experience, but also uses new organic virtual reality equipment. You know, you plug in and you feel like you're in the game. You're not just looking at a screen. The famous designer of the game is there for the trial, but so are extremists who hate virtual reality as a perversion of human life, and they sabotage the trial and attack the gamer. Uh, she goes on the run to try and stay alive with the, a young employee of the game company whose job on the night was to protect her. What follows is a strange experience that blurs the line between real life and virtual reality, where no one can trust each other, and no one knows if the violent mayhem going on around them is real. Um, had you heard of the film before, mate, before we did this? Uh, no, I'm not a big David Cronenberg fan, so I don't really know a lot of his, you know, lesser-known filmography. Yeah, I mean, so. he's got a lot of kind of sick and twisted body horror in it. I mean, probably the films that would be sort of that you'd be most likely to enjoy are the ones that are kind of furthest from what he's best known for, like A History of Violence and Eastern Promises. They're basically very cr gritty crime gangster dramas. But he's most well-known for kind of strange, surreal body horror. Um my first experience of this was the f of him was The Fly, which is his most c commercial film, but still very Cronenberg. That's about a scientist who invents a teleportation device, but mixes his DNA with a fly and turns into one. That got me into his other weirder, darker stuff. Um, uh, you know, David Cronenberg's always been interested in technology, but in kind of a gooey, fleshy, Bioshock kind of way. Oh, the, yeah. It's not hardware. It's kind of like it's made. It's it's, it's almost organic. The technology around him. This film's kind of a successor to Videodrome, one of his older films. In Videodrome, there's a really strange, creepy scene where James Woods, it's either really happening or James Woods is going mad. And he looks down and his um, his stomach looks like it's turned into some sort of gooey, organic version of a video recorder. And he starts pushing video cassettes into his, uh, into his stomach so he can experience the film in his head. It, it, so David Cronenberg likes this kind of weird shit. Um there's, there's a kind of sense of fun with this film, which is weird after what I've just described. It, it's, it's, it's an out-and-out -out thriller, and it's meant to be entertaining more than anything, which is kind of 
you know, contrast to his previous film Crash, which is a super dark and extensive, uh, you know, intense experience. I think maybe he just wanted to do something different. This didn't do all that well at the box office. It's not as well reviewed as other films. I think The Matrix swept all before it when it came out, but it does have a cult following, and it's. Um, uh, uh, I think if you you know people who like this sort of thing could could you know really enjoy it. I think the thing that I, that I was most interested to hear from you, mate, was um, this film is about gaming and gamers. Now you are a lot more of a gamer than I am, and I wondered, you know, how do you feel about gaming films about gaming in general? I mean, how oh, well do you how, how well do you think they do it? They're all shit. They're all they're all shit. And there's not been a single good video game, video game movie. Don't say Ready Player One because Ready Player One was shit. Um, they they there's no point in trying to make films about video games. This isn't really that kind of film. It's more about the kind of you know being plugged into a reality where you can play video games. But even then, I can't really be asked with these kind of films. They're they just they they have they they seem so out of touch with the community that it's meant to be um representing and yeah vi- video game movies they 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 kind of depict people in a certain way now i'm not saying this movie does that because this movie's more about the kind of the the diseased kind of pods that they they use and like that kind of side of things but it's it, it, this film wasn't for me and i think as an industry film should stay away from making films that are using video games as their topic this this film just wasn't for me i just don't think i get on board with david cronenberg at all <laughs> <laughs> so i mean i i personally think that films that try and just out and out do a video game adaptation they come to grief because video games and films are such different art forms you know at best you're going to do a very good depiction of uh, of a game that's still a lot more fun if you're playing it yourself do you know what i mean it's yeah. always a bit like you're watching someone else play the game and you can do that well but you're still just watching someone else play the game for 2 hours rather than doing it yourself especially some of these like immersive things like like warcraft how can you do a 2 hour warcraft film well, the whole point of warcraft is that you could start a game in like january of a year play it for a few hours here a few hours there and you get towards the end of the year and it's just it's something you can go back to anytime you like. Do you know what I mean? It's this on, constant, ongoing, living thing, you know? And I think people who sort of approach video games from a different angle like this, I personally think are more successful. What I liked about this film, partly I like the David Cronenberg kind of weird, kind of Bioshock, gooey, fleshy shit that he does. But I think what Cronenberg was interested in is there's always this talk about how video games turn people violent. And there's always people who kind of, have this huge hatred of new technology and anything like that and have this kind of extreme reaction to it. And I think David Cronenberg is amused by that. He's amused by how people think that the idea of playing a video game would make you violent, that violence in Grand Theft Auto, which is later than this game, but it just shows how old this kind of conversation is, would make people go out and commit violence in real life. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, not everyone who's played Call of Duty has gone out and invaded Poland. And, and I think, like, David Cronenberg is... Uh, he's amused by that and this was his kind of way of being quite playful with the idea but what he really wanted to do is to say look the storyline you're watching of people playing a video game wanting to watch a video game hating a video game wanting to kill the people making the video game you might be in the game this might be real life and these people are talking about video games or talking about what's happened to this video game and people are trying to kill them or they could be in a video game and they're not knowing whether what you're doing is real or not is what he's interested in doing. There are several moments in the film where people go, 
Um, uh, are we still in the game? I don't know. Did you just kill that person in real life or not? Do you know what I mean? And if you don't know, you know, the blurring the line. So it's all about, the the interest in this film was about blurring the line between reality and um, uh, 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 and, and virtual reality. But also, because Gronenberg likes to make these kind of pervy films where, you know, you, you don't just kind of, you know, what, you know, you don't buy a pair of goggles from Meta. You plug something into your spine. And apparently plugging something into your spine makes Jennifer Jason Lee's character really fucking horny. So there's all sorts of... It's just kind of a weird kind of indie kind of take on it. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's got a great cast. If you like these actors, you might be interested in seeing it. It's got Jennifer Jason Lee, Jude Law, Christopher Eccleston, Willem Dafoe, Ian Holm. Uh, fun fact, the actor playing the game shop employee who also turns up as a paramilitary at the end, Callum Keith Rennie. He was born in Sunderland. Um, Weird, lads. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean Jennifer and Jennifer. I love Jennifer Jason Lee in this film. She's having an absolute great time. She's having some kind of twisted emotional relationship with her game pod. Um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of rug pulls in the storyline. You're in a game, and then in the game they play a game, and you just kind of you start to get really disoriented. But I felt I could follow it. Like I say, I'm a Cronenberg fan, so I think I got more about about this than James did. I really love the first full transition into VR for Jude Law where he finally gets plugged into a game he goes fuck where am I I thought that was quite cool um, I don't think this was ever intended to compete with things like the, the the Matrix I think this is just like this is meant to coexist this is like the kind of strange indie flip side to that just like look the idea of virtual reality and technology and, and real and unreal worlds is just a fun thing to explore is what they're trying to do here um I think one thing that was interesting about this is that at the end of the film, I think you'd go back and go, do you remember when I thought that character was a bit cheesy or some of the dialogue there didn't make a lot of sense or why why it doesn't really explain to me very clearly why this group of people are trying to kill that group of people. Then you go, oh, maybe they were in a game. Do you know what I mean? A video game where you go, look, we don't have to spend all that much time in explaining all the complex kind of sides to this argument because you just want to get on and play the game, right? So I, I watched the, having watched this film several times, I then look back, when you look back on it, you go, oh, do you know what I mean? I um. And I enjoyed the fact they had non-playing characters. So the live humans have, have to um, interact with the non-playing characters and kind of, you know, say the right thing to them. For someone who's not very good at video games, I quite enjoyed Jude Law's character kind of getting the hang of like, 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 what do I say to progress to the next, uh, to the next level kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not, not, not one for you by the sounds of it. Yeah, it was just, just felt a bit dated for me. Uh, it, yeah, uh, that, that's all I'm going to say about it. It wasn't. It wasn't for me. Um, I'm not a big fan of David Cronenberg. Um, yeah, not my thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm going to make a case for it on on a couple of things. One, if you are a fan of anything like David Cronenberg, you should definitely watch this. If you think you're going to be a fan of David Cronenberg, because what, what I've described in terms of weird, gooey, strange kind of twisted films that explore dark topics. This is a really good start point. This or The Fly is a really good time to start watching David Cronenberg because then when you get into the weirder stuff like Videodrome and Scanners and Dead Ringers and Naked Lunch, if you went straight into one of those, you might go, you might just have your mind blown, but this would be a really good place to start because this is like a fun adventure Cronenberg style. So if you like Cronenberg and haven't seen this, get around to it. If you think you might like Cronenberg, this is a great place to start. 
And if you like this kind of strange kind of indie world where people play with reality and video games, I think it's a worthy entry in that. But I think for the reasons James described, I think you might, you know, some people might find that they, they get left a bit cold by this one. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the big screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we continue our theme on mind-bending films that play with reality, in which a director of striking and unsettling sci-fi films attempted to bring one of the all-time great cyberpunk novels to the screen. Our one that got away for episode 27 is Vincenzo Natale's Neuromancer Project. So James, this may well be completely out of your orbit. I don't know if Neuromancer is something that you'd ever even heard of, or even William Gibson was someone that you were a fan of or anything. Nope. Um, another kind of like fresh thing to just kind of take at a first glance. Um, so people who haven't heard of William Gibson or Neuromancer, but like sci-fi films, I think would be interested to, to, to see where he fits in because he's an absolute pioneer of this kind of stuff. William Gibson is a, uh, a novelist who has uh, really kind of uh, become a great, almost prophet of the future and a, t- and a terrific writer. But Neuromancer in particular has influenced everything from Ghost in the Shell. It came out after Blade Runner, but anyone's tried to like, you know, futuristic films like that. Um, the Matrix is definitely influenced by it. I think it has similar kind of uh, touch points to Inception. If you ever watched that Netflix show, Altered Carbon, any of these kind of uh, Minority Report is probably another one. Any of these kind of slightly dystopian visions of like a, a scary urban future with like an Asian tinge to them, uh, they they've read William Gibson's Neuromancer because that's where a lot of this really sort of came from. Um, what about Vincenzo Natale? You um, aware of him? Um, no, actually, no, I don't know if I've seen any of his stuff and not realised, but no, I don't, I didn't know the guy. Well, let me tell you about Vincenzo Natale. He started out with a really low budget, but interesting sci-fi film called Cube back in the 90s, which was almost like a sci-fi precursor to Saw. Um, it's not a horror movie, it's a sci-fi movie, but it's a group of people who wake up, um, have no idea how they got where they've got to, and they're in a room, um, it's full of booby traps and uh, those booby traps are going to kill them if they don't get out of the room. They use their ingenuity and get out of the first room, and they get into another room, which is basically identical size and shape to the previous room, but has different booby traps in it. And these people who don't know each other and don't know how they got there have to find some way to get through all of this, and it's this really striking, unsettling, like, what the fuck is going on here kind of film. But the tension is great, because every every scene, they flip from one set of booby-trapped. It's like the ultimate, like, escape room film, Yeah. Right. Uh, it's the perfect, you know, one of the best demonstrations of how to take a really great initial sort of, you know, premise and uh, and uh, and you know show what you can do and then turn that into sort of more of a film career. Now, he went on to do things like uh, Cipher and Splice. I don't know if you've seen those films, but he's sort of an indie sci-fi guy. Um, now, what Vincenzo Natale was presumably hoping to try and do was what Christopher Nolan did. Uh, make a splash with Memento, this kind of smaller, more independent, kind of mind-blowing, kind of strange, crazy film, uh, and and use that as the opportunity to make bigger, more ambitious films. Right? Not everyone can do it like Christopher Nolan did. Right? He what he what Christopher Nolan did was very clever. He went from Memento to Insomnia, 
which isn't a sci-fi film. It's not really got many of the, you know, the the sort of the bells and whistles that a lot of later Nolan films do have. But it showed the studio that could be trusted with bigger films. It's got lots of interesting stuff in it, characterizations that he likes. And from there, that got him to the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, Interstellar. Vincenzo Natale didn't ever quite get the big break that would have given him any kind of a comparable career. I don't think he'd ever have been as big as Nolan, but he could have been a lot bigger if he'd managed to make Neuromancer. This was his opportunity to make a bigger, more ambitious, you know, really sort of make a splash with a sci-fi film that would really have kind of, you know, broke new ground um, and, and take him to a new level as a filmmaker. So Neuromancer would have been, you know, the uh, the, the thing that did it. Um Neuromancer is one of the, the pioneers of cyberpunk science fiction. Uh, in fact, it came out in 1984. Gibson almost stopped writing it when he saw Blade Runner because he went, shit, someone else has got the same ideas than me. But he persevered, created his own new, his own story, which is a totally different thing. A classic of sci-fi was born. There's basically two sci-fi novels that fans of sci-fi fiction would be super excited if there was ever an adaptation. One is Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which is a similar sort of cyberpunk type novel. And the other one is Neuromance by William Gibson. This film, this book was a massive fucking event. I, I, I've lost count of how many times I've read this book. I absolutely love it. It follows the experience of uh, Case, who is an out-of-work like hacker in the future. And in the future, hackers exist in a kind of cyberspace where you plug in with a headset and you're in the computer. Do you know what I mean? You know, like, right. like like Tron in the computer, right? Okay. Um, he ha- he has been um, disabled. He fell out with people. He stole from the wrong people, and they they caused um, they injected him with a neurotoxin, which kind of wrecked his brain. And if your brain doesn't work, you can't go into cyberspace, right? So he's out of work, living on the edge in this desperate kind of eastern east Asian city somewhere. He's contacted by a mysterious new employer called Armitage, who, along with with Molly, a mercenary cyborg and a, and a thief illusionist named Peter Riviera, uh, Case participates in a series of data thefts for his new employer. They cure his neurological problem. He becomes a hacker again. But in return, he's got to be a thief for this shadowy, mysterious person. Uh, they then have to go into um, Freeside, an enormous space, hab- space habitat where all the rich and powerful live, uh, and uh, break into uh, Wintermute, which is a powerful artificial intelligence created by a powerful family which controls the world and contains lots of valuable data. And a huge cyberspace battle ensues between Case and Wintermute, the artificial intelligence. It's like a heist action thriller that takes place in cyberspace. And in 1984, this guy predicted essentially what would happen you know, in the 21st century when you put on a set of virtual reality goggles. He predicted it back then. He obviously predicted it in a much more extreme way where it gets plugged into the back of your head and you really feel like you're living yeah. it. But he, you know, he he invented cyberpunk. He's got these brilliant sort of visual depictions of the, the world of the future, you know, that kind of where, you know, Asian and Western influence kind of merge into one, these sort of dystopian like future cities where everyone lives, where it's kind of raining and shitty and polluted. And, um, you know, he's a brilliant prophet of the future. Um, and people have been trying to do films of this over and over again it's been plundered quite heavily by the matrix by various other films anyone who's tried to you know create a a dystopian urban sci-fi world is you know influenced by neuromancer um fun fact uh matrix star keanu reeves was in an actual adaptation of another william gibson story johnny mnemonic which wasn't very good unfortunately um (laughs) now previous people involved who tried to direct this film were chuck russell who did the mask the Ugh, fuck it, glad it, I'm glad it wasn't him. Uh, a guy called Joseph Carney, director from called Talk. Again, not very big names. 
For a while, Mila, Mila Jovovich was attached, presumably to play Molly. Uh, and then along comes Vincenzo Natali. He does Cube, which we just described. He does Cypher, which is like an interesting sci-fi movie about, you know, computer heists and, you know, just that sort of more futuristic take on things. And he does a film called Splice, which is about kind of body, kind of uh, um, body enhanced enhancement technology. All quite indie, relatively small, but he sh- with with Splice, he showed what he could do with a decent special effects budget, got a few people's attention. He got the rights to Neuromancer. He wrote a script that got William Gibson's approval. He got offers made to Liam Neeson and Mark Wahlberg, so we had some names to be in there. Presumably Wahlberg would play Case, the main character. Maybe Neeson would play Armitage or the voice of Wintermute, or maybe the face of Wintermute, depending on how they animate it. Now, by this time, virtual reality and AI is already a thing with The Matrix, but Natali wanted to take this back to the moody sort of cyberpunk aspect of something like Blade Runner. He wanted to build the world, you know? The Matrix doesn't actually build an urban futuristic world in the future. Everyone's living in caves underground, right? Uh, and the the, the, the 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 cyber world that they live in looks like the present day. So this would be a completely different visual experience. Um, he uh, he worked on it for about three or four years. I think it was about trying to get funding. It was about trying to get, you know, apparently Gibson totally approved of Natalie's script, but then you've got to get a studio interested. You've got to get executives behind you, get the money to make everything. Um, it struggles until about 2015, at which point a new film company comes in and uh, says, right, we'll give you the money to make the film. But then Natali left. Vincenzo Natali left the project. So it's never explained why. It's either creative differences, or I suspect he wasn't a big enough name for the people putting up the money. Um, It's a bit of a catch-22 for for a guy like Vincenzo Natali. You're a promising young director. You've made a bit of a splash, right? But if you spend too much time on this movie, you're not making the film that's going to make your name and then make you big enough to make a film like this. Um... So he he probably never quite got into a position where he would be the person who could make this movie. You either need a big director or a really big star to get a decent budget for this. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you feel? I mean, do you feel like there's room for another cyberpunk-like story? I mean, did you watch Altered Carbon, for example? No, I didn't. Um, I feel like the cyberpunk universe is a universe that's been portrayed really badly or it's not been done very well, whether it's in any medium. It's There's a... The famous Cyberpunk 2077 game, which was fucking terrible. It was rushed. They spent 10 years on it and it still wasn't ready. And then, um, yeah, I think Blade Runner's done it well, but that that's like 40 years ago now. And then they did Blade Runner 2049 and that's sort of the same universe. Mm. I think we need like a kind of fresh take on it. Just yeah. to get something completely new and refresh the kind of entire genre because it's a it's a it's it's an interesting kind of universe to be a part of it's it, it it's been done i think better in japanese anime than it's been done in live action films yeah. i mean ghost in the shell and akira are two really good examples of cyberpunk i mean for me i agree I, I i think there's room for a really good cyberpunk film which totally lives in this cyberpunk future and i, I think neuromancer is the film to do it um because it's, it's 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 one of the best books i've ever read it's a fantastic story it would be hard to adapt. I mean, a lot of it happens in cyberspace. It also gets quite freaky when the artificial intelligence starts attacking people's nervous systems and hallucinations. But there's it, a very, very clear storyline. I think why I mentioned Inception, right, is that everyone goes on about how you know, you know, difficult to follow Inception is. Inception is very, very clear. It's just it's happening in a fucking strange and 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 and, and disorienting world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The actual storyline of of Inception is you have got to carry out this heist. It just happens to be in someone's head. Um, what's what's freaky is that dreams 
like you described for Paprika, dreams go off in funny different directions and blow your mind, right? So there's a really good solid storyline here that, that, that you could make a movie in. You could make a TV show out of it because this is part of a trilogy of novels. You could do a, you know, a, a future William Gibson limited series, something like, like Altered Carbon. But I think a cyberpunk movie like you, I don't think a really good one's been made yet. I mean, because I think Blade, Blade Runner gets credited with being a cyberpunk film, but like you, I think it actually, it's actually doing a different thing. And it was also done 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I th- it's, you know, it, it's, it's quite hard to get right. And you've got a fan base that needs to be satisfied. And I don't believe in fan service, but you've got to be true to the original story while also, you know, doing what the budget can do and what works in a film. Um, I, I think this can be done. It just, you know, unfortunately, Vincent Natale didn't really get the chance. Um, uh, I think you'd need to you'd need to differentiate yourself quite heavily from The Matrix, which I think you can do because, as we said, The Matrix didn't build a future world. It wasn't trying to do that. Uh, I, I think if this if this were to be made, I think it would be a slightly smaller film. I don't think this is a hundred million, two hundred million dollar blockbuster. I think this is, needs to be smaller. I think uh, I think a good example of like a I, I think a very good cyberpunk film is Dread, the Judge Dread film. Um, although again, mm. that's doing something slightly different. It's an out out action film, and it and it exists in a slightly different universe. Um, uh, I wonder if it needs someone like Ridley Scott to have a crack at it. Um, I certainly think they need to go back and get get William Gibson's input into into a storyline for this film because while William Gibson did an amazing job of predicting the future and he's made a bunch of other like written a bunch of other novels, one of which called The Peripheral is about to be made into a series. He's a brilliant prophet of the future, but in 1984 you can't get everything right. Like it's still assumed that there would be a cold war with the um, with the Soviets when actually there will be a cold war in the future and it will probably involve Russia, but it won't be the Soviets. Do you know what I mean? You just need to change the details. Um, so yeah, I, I think it needed a bigger name than Natalie. I mean, it is like Ridley Scott to have a crack at it. Um, there, there is talk of Tim, um, what's his name? Tim Miller, the guy who did Deadpool having a go at this because he's Ooh. really into his cyberpunk stuff. Okay. He's, he was the creator of Love, Death and Robots and he likes his futuristic stuff. Um, that the thing is that was announced in 2017. It's 2022 and nothing's happened. Normally, you'd say that's probably done in five years, but you might need to subtract two years off that because of COVID. Um, so maybe it could happen, but uh, okay. it's not. It's not going to happen with this Natali guy. Vincenzo Natali will now be known as a guy who did some interesting small films. He missed his shot. It's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. Seems like it's his kind of baby, but yeah. who knows? Who knows what the future may hold? It's definitely worth giving Natali's films a shot if you like a bit of strange, quirky sci-fi, Cube uh, and Cipher, especially. Um, but other than that, this is definitely, you know, what might have been. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often, this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake, which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again, the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the hate watch with some credit. This month, we're looking at one of a series of 21st century remakes of horror classics that clearly is only interested in the money the original made and not in the story or ideas it explored. The remake hate watch for episode 27 is the 2010 version of A Nightmare on Elm Street. So, James, Nightmare on Elm Street, has this ever been a thing for you? 
Not really, I'm not into horror, so... Um, I know of A Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, because of um, Freddy Krueger. Um, and the, the iconic character that he is and the iconic film that was back in 1984. But as horror's not really been a massive thing for me, if the original one's a classic, I might watch it. For example, Alien. But I'm never going to watch Alien vs. Predator, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so. I, I, I would say... Um... Nightmare on Elm Street doesn't kind of transcend a horror genre the way something like Alien did. You would have to be a fan of horror or teen horror to really get anything out of the original Nightmare on Elm Street film. Um, So I think, you see, Stranger Things season four has probably done the version of this storyline that you would would watch. I mean, I know you've seen Stranger Things season four and the main kind of uh, monster or villain or, or, or baddie in that and the way he invades people's subconscious or invades something like their dreams... I think is influenced by Nightmare on Elm Street and has done it in a fresh and interesting way without actually being Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think that's that's the version you would watch. I know you've seen that. I don't think you would get that much out of the original. Um, it's I, I personally think the original film's a bit overrated. I think the idea of being attacked in your dreams and that if you die in the dream, you die in real life. I think that's a really interesting that's idea. It's a great idea. Isn't it's a it, great yeah. idea. I don't think it's all that scary or all that fascinating in the film that has been made, the, the film they made of it in Nightmare on Elm Street. It worked because it, it was made with a kind of gusto. Wes Craven makes his films really kind of, you know, chug along really effectively. It worked as a teen horror movie. It's got all the teen movie tropes. And Freddy Krueger was a really eye-catching villain which captured everyone's imagination. I think the, I think the, the target audience and their fear of being killed in their dreams they were suitably stimulated and by the gory set pieces in the film that made it a hit. I don't actually think it's all that great. I don't think Wes Craven likes his films very well. I think they always look like a glossy TV show from the 80s. They look a bit flat and uninteresting. It's not like John Carpenter and Halloween with all that atmosphere. Um, there are a couple of good moments in the original that have like right lighting and atmosphere, but mostly I wasn't that impressed and I thought it was a bit too jokey for its own good. Um, here's something else. The what what sort of dreams you know sort of sort of play worst on your fears and anxieties? We all have dreams that kind of freak you out. What was what's a typical anxiety or fear dream in your mind? Usually, I'm falling. Fall, my teeth are falling out. Falling teeth teeth are falling out. I, I you know I I used to have a recurring nightmare that I you know try to go to work and I'm back at school. It's like, what the fuck am I doing back at school? Why am I stuck with this <laughs> teacher I hate? Um, so, you know, turning up for work and you've forgotten all your clothes, turning up, going going on a journey and you've forgotten everything or you, you've gone to the wrong place. I don't think the original Nightmare on Elm Street played enough on... Because I think things like that work better when you make it specific and you say, actually, let's start by making this the kind of dream that we've all had that freaks us all out and then introduce the, the monster. Do you know what I mean? And it doesn't really do that. I, th- I think there's a lack of imagination in the original film. However... It's fucking Citizen Kane compared to the remake. <laughs> um, in, in the 2010 version, it's part of a cycle of remakes that happened in the first decade of the 21st century of some classic horror movies. It, it was done by a, a company called Platinum Dunes. Uh, Michael Bay is an executive from that. So with Michael Bay's involved, that tells you all you need to know about whether the films are going to favour atmosphere and subtlety over beating the audience around the head. In his defense, he did produce the Quiet Place films, so he is capable of doing you know. But these films are exactly the sort of crude nonsense you'd expect Michael Bay to be involved in, to be quite honest. They did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, 
this Amityville horror uh, the hitcher. Um, other films that came out around about the same time, which were like inferior remakes, were Halloween, Hills Have Eyes, Last House on the Left, Black Christmas, Prom Night, The Omen, Carrie. Imagine remaking Carrie. That's a fucking bold move. I Spit on Your Grave, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. None of these films needed to be made. And this is a, a, a typical example of them going, let's just do Freddy Krueger again. That's literally, they had no more ideas than that. Um, I'm trying to do horror remake, remakes sparingly for this feature because I know you're not a horror fan, mate. No, it's uh, not even that. I think it's the fact that there's almost all horror remakes are shit. Yeah. So you don't want the entire remake hate watch um, category to just be inundated. And, yeah, and, and, and there's, there's, million, there's millions of them. From, yeah. There's millions of them. Um, I mean, did you did you watch this one? What did you think of it? It's it, shit, isn't it? I, I put it on and I thought, they're not going to do anything interesting with this. And then 20 minutes in, nothing's happened. Um, 40 minutes and I'm thinking oh, yeah boo wow that that was scary um, but yeah they didn't they I didn't mean, do the, anything the, the absolute, didn't, there's no point in doing a film like this if you're not going to try something and they didn't yeah look I mean if you're if you're like a horror aficionado like your sister she will go hey, it was okay but they relied a bit too much on jump scares do you know what I mean but at least you've got jump scares that at least works right it's mechanical it's yeah. cheesy it's unoriginal but at least you can throw in a jump scare this doesn't even do the basics well. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't find it going, oh, here's, here's Freddy. There was never a case of, fuck, where did he come from? Not not enough of the actual mechanics of making a horror movie scary. It's the first failure. Um, the storyline was, uh, it was a bit meh. Um, they they decided to do a lot more about like the backstory to Freddy Krueger, which I don't think added anything. Um, yeah. it, was, um, it was a bit turgid to look at. It was like really muddy looking. I mean, I, I mean, my criticism of the first film was it was too cartoonish, but this was just like, did they drop the camera in a in a muddy puddle and forget to clean it? I don't know what you thought about like the color and the lighting and atmosphere of the film. I mean, I'd I'd be lying to you if I said I was looking at the color palette of the remake <laughs> of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2010. I'm not being funny. I mean, I, this film was shit. Like. Yeah, you, you, you'd be asking a lot of me to do that of a film that was my favourite film, you know, because for me, mm. you know, I think that's more your vibe. You love that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. As I think I sit in the film and I watch the film. So if I'm doing that, the film has to be something like Interstellar. Sure. Or something that's like, you know, they've done so much with it that you think, wow, the the colour palette or the lens they used yeah. there was excellent. Yeah. This film was n- not worth what, what, what it. Th- what did you think of the teen characters? I mean, the teen characters in the original are a little bit problematic because they're sexually active and then you find out that the main the main female character is 15 and you just think, okay, am I supposed to be sorry that her boyfriend's been killed? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, whereas this time, what did, what did you think of these teenagers? Were you interested in their world and their lives? Did you Did you, uh, did you you click with them while watching their lives? No, I'm kind of glad they got killed. <laughs> and and Freddy. How about Freddy? I really like Jack Errol Haley. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I do. Was, I thought he was the best thing in Watchmen by a distance. I think if you're going to remake a film like this and you cast Jack Errol Haley as Freddy Krueger, then you've not made a complete disaster of it, but he, he doesn't. Again, when you play Freddy Krueger, you have to play Freddy Krueger, and it's already been done loads of times by Robert England, so you're not going to be able to do much more with it. Than- yeah, this this sort of falls into the yeah. two still. So it's like, it's like, oh, well, if, if he's just like all wisecracking, then it's like, well, that's Robert England. Why have you bothered? 
So you've got to do mm-hmm. something different. But if you do something different, what's the point? And it was like, he tries a few one-liners and he, I think he does quite a good voice. He, he's very good at playing that kind of disgusting, creepy character, but I don't think the film gave him enough to do, did it? Um, I mean, generally speaking, you, they've got some, they kind of replay all the same kills from the first film, although the opening is very different. Um, at which point you say, mm-hmm. well, why bother? It's like, Ugh. Um, yeah. it was just, yeah. I mean, he's not the cartoon character of the original films, but he's not really anything uh, else either. They haven't really managed to pull <laughs> oh, anything off. Really. Sorry, the dog's in. Hello, yeah, Obi. I can, I can hear that. I can hear the clicking of, uh, of, <laughs> of, of of dog feet on on laminate flooring. Hello, are you coming to say hello? Is this all confusing? What are all these cables for? Hello, Obi. <gasps> granddad saying hi. <laughs> granddad. <laughs> Finally, other granddad. Uh, <laughs> hang on, Obi. What, what do you think about? Hang on, we'll get this. Obi, what do you think about the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street? I don't know if he got that, but he said it was fucking shit. Yeah, I thought so. I thought that's what he thought. <laughs> Let's let Obi have the last word on Nightmare on Elm Street. The remake didn't work. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will join us again for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on The Big Conversation, which this month looks at mind-bending films and filmmakers that play with realities and dreams. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. Well, I think let's let, let's let Lobi have let, let's let Lobi have the ass word. Fucking hell, I can't talk. I'll be editing.